The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. We have been studying the book of Job, and we want to go back there this morning. It seems like most all we've done to this point has been sort of a precursor and an overview, and this morning may seem like that as well, but the truth of the matter is we've made it all the way to the fourth chapter now. And we're beginning to move into a, another portion of the book of Job, a sort of a, uh, a change, if you will, in what we read in the first and second chapters, and even the third chapter. You may recall that the first and second chapters told us about uh, the encounter between God and Satan, where they were both attending a worship service, where Job apparently was, and where God pointed out to Satan about the good things that Job was doing and the, and the way that Job was living. And it reminds us that God is proud of his children. You know, we've said this in the book of Job. There's several themes there, and I don't pretend to have all the answers about all the different nuances of the book of Job, but there's at least three themes that I see in the book of Job. There's patience, pride, and pity. And of course, the patience of Job is mentioned in James, the fifth chapter, in the 11th verse. And I always say that, uh, that the best commentator, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. If you want to know what the book of Job is really all about, there's James, the fifth chapter, in the 11th verse that says, You have heard of the patience of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord. Now, many people think the end of the Lord in the book of Job was kind of difficult and, 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 and sort of uh, uh, arbitrary, that God somehow has some manipulation going on. But let me just say to you, uh, notice what James says about it. You've seen the end of the Lord. So what's the end of the Lord when Satan has afflicted the children of God? In, in James 5.11, he says, you have seen the end of the Lord, that he is very pitiful and of tender mercies. See, ultimately, if we come away from the book of Job with any idea about God, other than that he is full of pity and that he is full of tender mercies toward his children, we have missed the point of the book of Job. Now, there's, there's as I said, pity is one of the things. Also, pride is one of the things. And there's a sort of a twofold aspect to that. There's the pride of God. God is proud of Job. God delights, as we've already seen, in the faithfulness of his children. He said, if you consider Job, there's nobody like him in, this, in the world. There's nobody like him. Nobody's living as faithfully as Job. That didn't mean Job was working his way to heaven. Job couldn't work his way to heaven any more than, than the lowest of the thieves. The, the thief on the cross couldn't work his way to heaven and Job couldn't do that anymore himself but as a born again child of God who was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and whom Christ died for or in Job's case whom Christ was coming to die for one day Job was able to please God beloved we are able to please God we are able to serve him we can't work our way to heaven and please don't try <laughs> Please don't, work on, please don't look at it that way because if you try to work your way to heaven, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to find the rest that is promised to the children of God in the kingdom of God if you try to work your way there. If you try to, some people think, well, God got me here, but I got to keep myself here. That's an even worse, that's an even worse task. I'll tell you, think about this. 
I don't want to get off too far this morning, Brother Mackey, but think about this. I want you to think about the best day of your life when you feel like you were the most faithful to God and ask yourself this question. Did your good works and good thoughts and good intentions outweigh your bad? I'm sorry to tell you, I can't think of a day in my life where, where it even came close. I did some good things. I've had some good days. I've made some good efforts toward serving the Lord. I have some quote-unquote righteousnesses in the sense of good works. I have some in my life, and I know you do too. But not one day has any, have those righteousnesses ever risen above the level of filthy rags. You know, part of the problem there is because even when I did good work, sin was present in my mind. Maybe I, maybe I gave to the church, but I was thinking about how good a guy I am for doing that. <laughs> you know, maybe I helped somebody out of a ditch and pat myself on the back all the way, Brother Mackey. Job was not working his way to heaven, but Job was serving the Lord and he was pleasing God in doing so. And by the way, only a born-again child of God can do that. Because we're told that the wicked, those who are reprobate, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. But those who are children of God can do it. So there was this aspect in Job of the pride of God. God was proud of Job. But we're going to see, and we're going to see it pretty soon here as we get into the next section of Job, <clears throat> that there was another negative side to pride. And it weighs pretty large as we get through this. And that's the pride of Job and the self-righteousness of Job and his friends. Apparently, there was a problem among the uh, religious worship of that day. And remember, they didn't have the Bible back then. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't even have the book of Genesis, the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy back then, according to, to what we understand about when Job was written. They were kind of winging it, if you will. And I'm sure God gave special revelation to men, and he gave special revelation probably to Job in, in many ways. But, but, but just understand, they were doing, they were trying in many ways, uh, to, to serve God, but they were serving Him in a self-righteous way. So this morning, as we think about those themes that, that permeate the book of Job, we want to go to the fourth chapter and, and, and begin there, and, and maybe, uh, maybe we won't read as much today because I want to give us an overview about Job's miserable comforters. Job's miserable comforters. Over in the 16th chapter of the book of Job. Job makes this statement concerning these three men that came to see him. In verse 1 of chapter 16, Job answered and said, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are ye all. <laughs> miserable comforters are ye all. The word miserable, is, it also can be translated according to my center column here as troublesome. They came to him to comfort him, and they didn't do anything but trouble him. You ever had that experience? I've had the experience in my life of someone coming to comfort me, and all they did was stir me up. And, and another word for this could be vexation. Uh, uh, the, the word literally means wearisome, heavy, toil-filled labor. That's what it means. You know, when you're, when you're in need of comforting, you know, we've had a lot of death lately. We've had a lot of folks die in our community, and connected to our church over the past six months to a year. And there's been a lot of times we've needed to comfort one another. And, 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 and what you need when you're needing to be comforted is not 
to be stirred up into some kind of action. You know, I need to be, I, I need to sit still. I need someone's arms around me. I need someone's shoulder that I can cry on. I need, I need peace and stillness. But what they were doing, according to Job, is stirring him up and vexing him. They were troublesome comforters. You know, it's the same Hebrew word here that's used in Isaiah 53 and verse 11, where it's said of God, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It's that same thing. The, the idea here is that what these men were doing to Job was almost as bad as the struggles and the trouble that Jesus was facing on the cross. <laughs> it's that same word, at least, that's used. It's stirred up and it's causing him trouble. So let's, let's talk about Job's miserable comforters. Back in the second chapter in the, 13th, the, the, the 11th verse, we're told that Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him. And they came everyone from his own place. Now here's their names. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. They came for a good reason. They came with good intentions. And actually, the best part of what they did, they did at the beginning. Notice as we read. When they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven, and they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. The best thing these miserable comforters did, they did at the beginning. They didn't say a word. <laughs> they didn't say a word. I'm going to come back to that, but sometimes that's the best thing we can do for somebody who's hurting, for somebody who's mourning. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his friends. And there's one other that's going to come later, and we'll talk about him when we get there. So let's talk about what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are doing. And, and each one of them kind of have a little, they're basically saying the same thing, but they have a little different approach. Eliphaz speaks to Job in, in chapters 4 and 5, chapter 15, and chapter 27. And then Bildad speaks to Job in chapter 8, and then on over in chapter 18, and then in chapter 25. And then Zophar speaks to, to, to Job in the 11th chapter, and then on over in the 20th chapter, he only speaks to him twice. But in each case, they're saying similar things, but they have a little different approach. So let's talk about Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Temanite seems to be relying on his experiences. You know people like that. I mean, and sometimes it's okay to rely on our experiences. But if you ever sit down with somebody and they say, well, I know what I'm talking about because I've had this experience. I've been there. I know. Well, the truth of the matter is every situation is a little different. And, I, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not saying you should never say, hey, brother or hey, sister, I know what you're going through. It's appropriate to empathize. It's appropriate to be uh, to try to identify, but understand that the truth of the matter is the grief that you experience is different than the grief that I've experienced. The experience you've had is different than the experience I've had. But, but, but Eliphaz comes in and he's relying on his experiences, in the, especially Job chapter 4 and 5. In verse 8, let's, let's begin reading in chapter 4. Eliphaz in verse 1 Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? 
but who can withhold himself from speaking? Now remember what's just happened. In the third chapter, Job has basically, we would say, he has spilled his guts to them. He has opened his mouth and he has told them exactly how he's feeling. And basically the way Job is feeling is, I wish I had never been born. And if I had been born, I wish I'd died as a child. And by the way, Lord, why won't you kill me now? I'm ready to die. I'm tired. I don't want to live any longer. I wish I'd never been here. He's, he got the, he's got the Jimmy Stewart approach, and it's a wonderful life, right? I wish I'd never been born, you know? Now, I'm going to tell you we, you, you, we may laugh about that, but I'm telling you, we all get there sometimes, don't we? Maybe you haven't. I have. I've been to the point where it would just be better for my family and for everybody else if I'd never been born. Of course, that's not really logical thinking because... If I'd never been born, they'd never been born. But, you know, we don't, we're not thinking logically when we get to that point in life. Elijah was not thinking rationally when he got down under the juniper tree. And he said, Lord, I'm no good anymore. I, I, I'm the last one left, and, and you just might as well kill me. Job, I mean, Elijah was at that point that Job was at, saying, Lord, I'm just, I really am ready to die. And he had just spilled all these emotions to his friends here. And now Eliphaz says, I've got to say something. I can't not talk based on what you're saying. And notice in verse 3, he says, Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholded him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. It sounded pretty good so far. He's bragging on him, right? No, he's really not. Notice what he's saying. But now it's come upon thee, and thou faintest. It touches thee, and thou art troubled. Is this not thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? In other words, wait a minute, Job. You've been preaching all this good stuff in the past and doing all these good works, and now it's hit you, and you're, you're reacting this way? Now, there's some, as I've said before, there's a lot of truth in what these miserable comforters say. But most of the time, they misapply that truth. In, in, as we read through the book of Job, as you go and study it, you'll find a lot of good things they say. In fact, we're going to find out that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are really right in what they're saying. But the problem is they're speaking the truth, but they're not speaking it in love. They get the truth of God's sovereignty. They get the truth of God's majesty, but they miss the truth of God's eternal love and his compassion and his pity so here's what he said he said relying on his experiences he said i'm going to tell you some things that i've seen and notice in verse 8 he says i even as i have seen <laughs> down in chapter 5 and verse 3 i have seen this and that and he's he's relying on the things that he has he has been talking about and, and he, notice in chapter 5 in verse 27, this is how he concludes it. He said, Lo this, we have searched it, so it is. In other words, it's almost as if he's saying, Hey, you can count on what I say. I've said it. Trust me, I'm right. Trust me, I'm right. You know, there's a lot of truth that you can tell to someone who's mourning, to someone who's suffering that may be true, but is not appropriate to be telling them at the time. Brother Buddy preached a series, I believe it was him, on uh, 
on, on our speech and saying things. And you know, it's not only important that we say the right things, it's important that we pick the right time to say them. Over in Proverbs, he says in one place that uh, a, a word spoken in due season is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. But it's spoken in due season, you see. Everything he's telling him is right. He's saying, I've seen these things, and here's what he's saying I've seen. Verse, going back to chapter 4 and verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. What he has seen in his life leads him to believe that in every situation, the ones who prosper are God's children who are doing right, and the ones who suffer are maybe God's children, but they're doing wrong. They're saying that the suffering is evidence of God's cursing and God's displeasure upon them. Well, that may be a general principle. That may be a general observation. In fact, it's a, it's a general principle in the Word of God that you reap what you sow. But we're dealing with a man right here who's not reaping what he's sown. We're dealing with a man named Job who is suffering from the attacks and the assaults of Satan and going back here and telling him, Hey, my experience tells me you got some unconfessed sin in your life. You got some problem with, in your life. That's not going to cut it. That's why God ultimately gets angry at these miserable comforters and at Job, but that's for a little different reason. So we don't want to go any more deeper into chapter four right now, but let's, let's turn to the other, let's turn to one of his other miserable comforters, Bildad the Shuhite. Bildad the Shuhite begins speaking over in the 8th chapter. And he says this in verse 1, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Now, now let me stop here and say what's happened is, in chapters 4 and 5, uh, Eliphaz has, has brought his, his experiences to bear to try to teach Job some lessons and get him to understand that he's suffering because of something he's done. And then in the, seventh, in, the, uh, 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 in the sixth chapter, Job has responded here, and he has, uh, uh, he, has, he has defended himself, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Job has responded in the sixth chapter and defended himself, and in the, and in the seventh chapter as well. And then Bildad says, you sound like a strong wind blowing. <laughs> he says, you're just, you're just uh, as, as my mother used to say, you're just talking to hear your head roar. Uh, I don't know if y'all ever heard that. That's what mama used to tell me. She said, quit talking just to hear your head roar, okay? God, God uh, he, he says, how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? He's offended by what Job has said. And then Bildad, instead of relying on his own experiences, he relies on what he's seen in history, historically. He's relied on what in his his um, understanding of what's gone before, and it's basically the same thing that Eliphaz says, but notice what he says in verse 3, Job 8 and verse 3, Doth God pervert judgment, 
or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Now, now, let me just answer the question. That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is God never perverts justice. God never perverts justice. That's a true statement. You remember over in the 18th chapter of Genesis when, when God and had that encounter with Abraham and Abraham found out that God was going to Sodom to destroy it and began to negotiate for Lot's life. He asked the rhetorical question of God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely. The judge of all the earth is always going to do right. And here, Bildad asked a similar question, doth God pervert judgment or doth the Almighty pervert justice? In other words, how can you say God is, is going to do something that's not just? But notice something here. Because if you miss the point about what's going on, then you miss the point. These three miserable comforters, and even Job begins to buy into this, they believe God is doing this to Job. They believe God's the one who's afflicted him. And you remember, I love that. I, I just love how God always is God. He never violates his nature. And you remember back over in the first chapter when when he first pointed out Job and Satan said, yeah, you've got a hedge about him and all this, and, and I've been trying to get to him, but I can't. And then in verse 11, he says, you, he, Satan talking to God, put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Same thing he did to, 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 to Jesus over there after his baptism. He began to tempt Jesus. He's the great tempter. He's the slanderer. He's slandering Job here. He's slandering God. He's trying to get God to do something that goes against the very nature of God. He said, God, you touch him. And you know how many people believe God touched Job? You know how many people don't read the next verse and don't understand it and don't realize that it wasn't God doing this to Job? God played his part. God stayed true to his nature as the keeper of the hedge. And yes, he lowered the hedge, but God never one time afflicted his sweet servant Job. Because notice what happened next. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. God is not the afflictor of the brethren. Yes, God chastens his children, but he chastens them in love. He does not arbitrarily afflict them. He does not arbitrarily send suffering upon them. If he ever allows or permits suffering, or as I like to say it, biblically speaking, as he, if he ever suffers sufferings and tribulations to come upon them. He's with them through it. Satan tried to get him to touch Job. God wouldn't do it. He said, he's in your hands. And praise God, I know I pointed this out earlier, but in case I didn't and in case you've forgotten, notice that he set a limit. God is still protecting Job. And if you miss that point, you miss the point of Job. God is not doing this to Job. You see, Bildad says, God's doing this for a reason, Job. God's doing it to you. They're assuming something that's not happening. In verse 4, he says, If thy children have sinned against him, and have, he have cast them away for their transgression, if thou wouldest seek unto God betimes, which means early, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now would he awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. 
In other words, Job, I'm tired of hearing you flap your gums. You sound like a wind blowing because it is so clear. I know based on history that God's doing this to you because you or your children are both are great sinners and you must repent. Let me stop here and say this to every single one of you and especially me. If you find yourself in the crucible of suffering, one of the first questions you should ask yourself, God, am I being chastened? Lord, is this based on something that I've done? We always should examine ourselves in those situations. But I promise you one thing. I've had people say this to me before. Preacher, I, I don't know why God's chastening me. I don't know why I've had so much chastening over the past period of time. I just don't know what I've done that God is punishing me. Well, I assure you for one thing. I, know, I don't know many things, but I know one thing from the Word of God. If you can't figure out why God's chastening you, it's probably not God chastening you. Think about it as a parent. How many times did you ever chasten one of your children without telling them why? How many times did you just start? You, you didn't, I didn't just indiscriminately go in there when they were fussing and fighting and start wailing away on them. And, and then they say, why, Daddy, why? And just walked away. I wasn't a great father, but, but it, I knew that much. And God is the perfect father. I'll tell you this from my experience. <laughs> I've been chastened by God more than once several times in my life in a real distinct way. And you know what? Every single time I knew why. If you have any spiritual sense about you, God will answer the question why if he is indeed chasing you. And if you can't answer that question, then it's probably the world, the flesh, or the devil that's causing you these problems. The curse of sin around us or the curse of sin within us. Why did I get diabetes? Why did I get cancer? Why did I get Parkinson's? Why did, you can name all the, why did this happen? Well, the general answer is we live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a world that's been cursed by sin since Adam ate of the fruit that Eve gave to him. Thorns and thistles are brought forth from the ground. We don't plant gardens and walk away and come back six weeks later and they're perfect and everything's standing and you can go get the, get the okra and the peas to just fall in your lap. You have to work it because of the curse of sin. We don't live forever because we're sinners. We're born that way. So, Bildad here is operating from a false assumption that God's doing this. And, and he's a very strong legalist, very strong. Over in the 18th chapter where he's talking again, we read this from Bildad. In the 18th chapter, in verse 5, he says, Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. <laughs> and look down in verse 8, just for lack of time. He is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walketh upon a snare. He's talking about the wicked here. He's saying, it is a law, Job. The wicked always suffer. Verse 21, surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. In other words, Job, maybe you don't even know God. 
Because you're suffering so mightily, and God doesn't do that to good people. God does that to the wicked. Well, it gets a little bit worse even with Bildad over in the 25th chapter. It's a very short chapter here. The last time we hear from Bildad, he says this after Job has, you know, Eliphaz has spoken a couple of times, and Bildad has spoken a couple of times, and Zophar has spoken at least once. And now Bildad sort of wraps his, his whole statement up in chapter 25 saying, verse 2, Dominion and fear are with him, talking of God. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? These are good questions. And I told you, there's some truth in these questions. But the problem is his view of God was only about the majesty of God and about the justice of God. And, and praise God, there's more to the Lord than that. He's a God of comfort and of pity. How, behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man, which is a worm. Let me tell you, there's no doubt that's true. You and I are but worms of the dust. In one place, he calls us nothing and less than nothing. But I want to ask you a question. We had a funeral this week for our dear brother Jake. His family was mourning his loss. His family was hurting over his loss. There's a lot of pain like that in the world. There are others that are mourning loss right now. What if I had gone up to one of his family members, put my arm around him and said, all right, just remember, Jake deserved this. Y'all deserve it. You're a worm. God bless you walked away how much comfort would that be <laughs> it's true <laughs> we don't deserve any more than death we, we if the lord had slain me at birth that's more than i deserve if i die today i don't deserve any better i am a worm of the dust and legalistically speaking bildad was exactly right oh but praise the lord he's not just a legalistic god he didn't, he didn't intend for Bildad to go there and start focusing upon the depravity of man, the depravity of this, this worm of the dust named Job. You see, there's more to God. Do you know what God has done to the worms of the dust like you and me? He has loved us with an everlasting love. I don't deserve it. I should be cast into hell. I deserve hell. I deserve, I deserve never to have lived. But he loved me with an everlasting love. And even though I am a worm of the dust, even though that is exactly my place in the scale of, of priorities, praise God, he's loved me as a worm of the dust and he has put me in high places by his grace. Oh, Bildad, don't be so judgmental. We know legalists. I know you know them. I know preachers that are legalists and harsh. And the next man, Zophar, is one of the harshest of all. Zophar, the third miserable comforter, shows up in the 11th chapter of Job. And he's the harshest of all three of the friends, I believe, in my reading of him here. Look at verse 5 of, of, of chapter 11. Let me back up. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite. Remember, 
Remember, all these are happening like this. Eliphaz will speak, and then Job will reply. And then Bildad will speak, and then Job will reply. And now Zophar is speaking for the first time. And he says, should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? He's kind of got the same approach to Job. You're, you're talking too much, Job. You're just, you're just talking to hear your head roar. Should thy lies, look at how harsh he is. Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed. Let me, let me just stop here and say this. I have tried to comfort people before who have made statements about God that are wrong. I've, I've talked with people who are weeping and asking questions and making harsh statements about God that, they, that are obviously wrong in the Scripture. But you know what I didn't do at that point? I didn't get into some deep theological discussion with them about how wrong they are. I didn't say, whoa, 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 you're a liar. <laughs> That's what Zophar is saying. Job, you're over here suffering. Job is scraping himself with a pot shard. He has lost his family. His, even his wife has turned unfaithful uh, to, 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 to encourage him to be unfaithful to God. And Zophar looks at him and said, you big liar. <laughs> how comforting is that? Well, anyway, a lot, of, a lot of lessons in here about speaking the truth in an appropriate time and speaking it in love. But look how harsh he is. Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thy eyes. But look at verse 5. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of his wisdom, and they, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Oh, man. What a harsh, judgmental friend. What a legalist. His main assumption here is that Job has sinned and must repent. Job, all of your problems are based on unconfessed sin in your life. And he goes on harshly to talk to Job and ultimately tells him, you've got to make yourself right with God. Now, Remember, as I said, all these friends make some good points of truth, but they misapply them, and you have to rightly divide these statements. So for a, just a few minutes here, as our time is about gone, I want to I just talk briefly about Job's responses. We may come back to this later. And what they all got wrong, and what we need to remember in our lives. So Job... His responses is sort of an overview. First of all, he begins to buy into the idea that God is doing all this. He begins to, he begins to listen to what they're preaching. In chapter 6, he answers in verse 1, he says, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together, for now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof, I, whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. He's buying into it. Be careful what you say to someone, particularly in their grief, but certainly in every aspect of our lives. We could lead somebody astray. They're, they're saying, God's doing it, Job. God's doing it. And Job begins to believe it. 
he really started out that way a little bit, to be honest with you. But he says, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Now, to a large extent, what Job says in defense of himself to his friends is correct. In verse 14 here of chapter 6, he says, To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. In other words, why are y'all coming jumping on me? You ought to be showing me pity. He's right. That's what they, so there's a lot of things he's right about. Pity is what is needed, not harshness, not legalism, not, not some kind of uh, 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 approach that, that doesn't have pity involved in it. That never comforted anybody. Legalism never comforted anyone. So he begin, but he begins to buy into this idea that God is doing this, and he often defends himself properly, as I said. And we'll see that as we go through this book. But eventually, he begins to display the pride and the self-righteousness that's present in both his life and his friend's life. Look at chapter 23 just for a second as we're coming down to a close here. In chapter 23... This is where it seems, it doesn't begin here, but you really begin to see it here. In verse 1, Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter, my stroke is heavier than my groaning. Now listen to this. You ever been here? Oh, that I knew where I might find him, talking about God. That I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Now think about what Job is saying. If I could just find God, I'd make my case to him. I'd make him answer me. I'd ask him some questions. I'd fill my mouth with some arguments that he'd have to listen to. Listen to the pride here. You ever felt that way? God, where are you? God, why won't you answer? God this, God that. Why are you doing this? Now listen, we all are there, and that's one of the reasons Job is such an important book, because I can identify with Job. When things keep happening, I've had that, I'm sure you've experienced it, where it's just one thing after another after another, and sometimes you get to the point, why me, Lord? Why me? And we forget that the real appropriate question is, why not me? Why not me? You know, what do I deserve any better? But Job forgot here. By the way, I want to point one thing out to you. What happened when God did appear on the scene? How many questions did Job ask God? <laughs> How many questions did Job ask? I fill my mouth with arguments. I'm going, to, I'm going to demand of him and he'll answer me. No. God came on the scene and said, Job, I just got a question for you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? <laughs> answer me, son, if you, can, if you can. And Job eventually says, I've, I've spoken too many times, I'm going to lay my hand on my mouth. But you see, Job begins to display some of the pride and self-righteousness. And he ultimately holds on to the desire to just be put out of his misery. He says, I'm so miserable, I want to die. You ever been there? Look back over in chapter 7. Chapter 7, he says, verse 1, Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hireling, as a servant earnestly desireth the shadow, as a hiring looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed to meet. And by the way, when he's talking about an appointed time, that literally means a warfare. That literally means a time of fighting. There's, he's not talking about a certain day 
that you're going to die. That's talking about your appointed time here on this earth. It's a time of warfare. It's a time of struggle, okay? And he says, I'm ready to go. I'm tired, Lord. Just put me out of my misery. Now, okay, as we close in the next five minutes, <laughs> what did they get wrong? What did they get wrong? Both Job and, and his miserable comforters, but particularly Job's miserable comforters. Well, first of all, they understood God's greatness, but they did not remember his mercy. God is a great God. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. But you know what it tells us in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3? That he has loved us with an everlasting love. We read in other places in the Psalms that he sits high upon his throne. Oh, but he looks down upon his children. In Psalm 138 and verse 6, listen to this. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. The Lord is high, but he has respect unto the lowly. God looks down upon his children. In Psalm 113, listen to what he says over here, uh, beginning in verse uh, 4. Psalm 113 and verse 4. The Lord is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? They focused on that. They got that part of God that he dwells on high. He's high in the heavens. But notice verse 6. Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. You know what we're told in Ephesians chapter 1? That he loved us before the foundation of the world, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, before anything was laid, before the universe was created. He loved his people. He said, and he said according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, predestinating us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. They understood God's greatness. But they forgot about his mercy. God always loves those whom he has chosen in Christ in eternity past. And Job knew this. In the 19th chapter, he said, I know my Redeemer lives. His friends had forgotten this. They also got it wrong because they equated God's grace with the abundance of earthly blessings. You know, his friends here were really the first proponents of the prosperity gospel, right? <laughs> You know, name it and claim it. If you got enough faith, you'll get it. If you, you give a $10, you'll get $100 back. You give $100, you get $10,000 back. That prosperity gospel has been around since the time of Job, brother buddy. <laughs> they equated God's grace with the abundance of earthly blessings. The, the idea, the logic here is that God sends curses and calamities on wicked men. Here we see God has sent curses and calamities on Job. Therefore, Job must be a wicked man. But again, the fundamental problem here is that although God did move the hedge, he did not send the calamities. Job's prosperity was not a sign of God's grace, and his troubles were not a sign of God's condemnation. Read Psalm 73 sometime, and you'll see sometimes the wicked do prosper. And finally, they focused upon Job's troubles instead of pointing Job to God's promises. 
They focused upon Job's troubles instead of pointing him to God's promises. They condemned Job instead of encouraging him. They should have reminded him of God's love instead of browbeating him with God's judgments and his justice. Remember 2 Corinthians over here when Paul is talking about all his troubles? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 16, he says, For which cause we faint not, speaking of all these things where God has been with him, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction. Listen, read about Paul's affliction sometime. It's not light. It's terrible. He got beaten four times with 39 stripes. He was shipwrecked. He was let down in a basket out of a wall. He was constantly being harried by the enemies of God's kingdom. But he calls it a light affliction. Why? Which is but for a moment. He said our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now how is it, Paul, that you're able to keep this view? While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Similar situation with Paul, but Paul was focused on the right things. Job and his friends were focused on the wrong things. The ultimate issue is his friends fundamentally misunderstood the nature of God. I want to say to you this morning, beloved, he is great, but he's also merciful. And a proper understanding of God will always lead us to humility, love, and mercy. Job pretty much got that part right. He did understand, better than his friends at least, that God is great, but he's a God of mercy. So what's the lessons? Number one, don't leap to conclusions. When you find someone suffering, as Job was, or even not quite to that extent, don't leap to conclusions. We don't have the right kind of vision to figure out even our own problems, much less the problems others are having. There's always a situation we cannot see, like there was in the case of Job. There's always a touch of mystery, in a sense, and, 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 and lack of understanding when it comes to the sufferings of God's people. Lesson number two, don't assume that God is doing everything that's happening that you see out there happening to someone or to yourself. Most of the time, it's the world, the flesh, or the devil that's causing the problem, or all three. Lesson number three, don't equate grace with things or circumstances. Even Job did this. Most of what he was arguing is, why do I deserve this? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if it's chastening, it's between you and God. It's between that person and the Lord let me ask you this. How would you like it if you were disciplining your children and somebody comes up in the middle of it? <laughs> but think about it. Think about it. If I was spanking one of my children and someone else came up in the middle of that, I'd stop spanking them and I'd do what God did. God turns to them and says, I'm angry with you. You know, God wasn't doing this to Job, but these friends got up in the middle of it and he said, you know, they tried to interfere with what was going on. If God is chastening somebody, leave them alone. Pray for them and love them. That's between them and God. And finally, remember this. Sometimes it's best to just sit down in silent sympathy with your friend who's suffering. If these miserable comforters had just sat there and just wept with him and just mourned with him and just been with him, 
we'd be looking back on them and saying what wise men they were. But they were miserable comforters because they tried to explain something they didn't know the answer to. We don't always have the answers either. We don't always know what's going on. But we know the one who does. And we can't always comfort the way we need to. But we know the God of all comfort. Remember this when we're dealing with the sufferings of our friends and neighbors and our family out there. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.